Welcome to Verified Rx, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Vizian Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. FDA just provided their DSCSA final guidance, and we're here to debrief with the second installment of our series, Ready, Set, Go. I'm Gretchen Brummel, and back with us is Carolyn Liptak, my fellow pharmacy executive director in the Vizian Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. Also joining us is Eric Marshall, principal at Levitt Partners and executive director of the Partnership for DSCSA Governance, and Josh Bolin, Associate Executive Director, Government Affairs and Innovation at the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Gretchen. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Carolyn, our listeners know you well from your previous visits. Josh and Eric, tell us about your background and organization. Josh, why don't you start? I presently serve as the Associate Executive Director for Government Affairs and Innovation at the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy. NABP is a 501c3 charitable and educational organization, and as is in the name, our members are the state boards of pharmacy in the 50 U.S. states, D.C., Guam, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. And the association's mission is to work in support of our member boards as they work to protect the public and regulate the prescription drug supply chain. Thank you for that. And Eric, your background? I wear a number of hats related to the DSCSA. I'm a principal at the consulting firm Levitt Partners. We're a health policy consulting firm based out of Washington, D.C., and our firm has a deep history with the DSCSA. We advise an industry group called the Pharmaceutical Distribution Security Alliance. It's an industry group across the supply chain that really drove the creation, the advocacy for the Drug Supply Chain Security Act. I think that's always a helpful place to start and remind listeners that this is actually a law that the industry asked for and advocated for as a solution to a problem that they were facing. That's always a helpful piece of background. I also have done a lot of work internationally on serialization traceability requirements around the globe and run a couple of pilot projects internationally. Probably most relevant to this conversation, I also serve as the executive director of an organization called the Partnership for DSCSA Governance, or PDG. It's a nonprofit organization and a public-private partnership with the FDA, really charged to create the blueprint for industry's roadmap to interoperability in 2023. Well, thank you both for those backgrounds. I'm really excited to get into this discussion. So, Carolyn, we're all getting ready for DSCSA implementation on November 27th, but the FDA made an important announcement in August about this. What do we need to know? On August 25th, FDA announced a one-year stabilization period to accommodate additional time that trading partners may need to adhere to DSCSA requirements for electronic drug tracing at the package level. The stabilization period will accommodate an additional year until November 27th, 2024, to allow trading partners to implement, troubleshoot, and mature their electronic interoperable systems. Although the newly published guidance clarifies that FDA does not intend to take action to enforce the enhanced drug distribution security requirements until November 27th of 2024, FDA expects trading partners to use this stabilization period to build and validate their interoperable systems and processes to manage products and data and ensure continuity of the drug supply chain and product availability to patients. This period is not intended to provide a justification for delaying efforts to comply with DSESA. So the key term here is really stabilization period. Josh, what does that mean from your view at NABP? Over the last two years in our work with our member boards of pharmacy, as well as members of the supply chain, we've definitely seen that there is a lot of great work that's already gone toward in terms of trading partners that are ready for November of 2023 and that deadline. 
but we've also seen that there's still a large number of trading partners that need additional time, in particular in the dispenser space. So from NABP's perspective, we applaud the FDA's announcement for that one-year stabilization period. We believe that it does provide the opportunity for trading partners to continue to work on their systems and work toward compliance, but it also isn't so long that trading partners should believe that they can take their foot off the gas. They should all be moving forward as if everything's going into effect. From our member board perspective, in talking with the boards and the DSCSA, there is actually a shared regulatory responsibility between the FDA and the state boards of pharmacy and the other state regulatory bodies. From the board's perspective, the stabilization period, technically it's just guidance. It's not binding. The good news is in our discussions with the boards, they all see the need for additional time as well. I don't see a scenario where a board is going to step beyond what's in the FDA guidance and try to enforce the November 27th, 2023 requirement. Our members view this as being a good thing overall. It also gives them time to prepare and update their inspection processes and other forms that they may need to update working toward that electronic and interoperable system. So it sounds like this is a good thing to have that extra time to allow some of those partners to catch up. Eric, how about from your perspective, what does the stabilization look like from PDG's perspective? Josh nailed it. In the guidance itself, and especially in conversations, both private and public speaking engagements from FDA, they've really emphasized that piece. This is not a reason to slow down or stop your activities. This is about giving people that flexibility to work through their challenges and mature their systems while not being put in that difficult position of deciding, do I err on the side of regulatory perfection with my data or do I ensure patient access when these inherently immature systems are still getting caught up to speed? I think FDA's made that very clear. And, and if anybody He's not looked at it, I encourage you to go look at that guidance. There's a big, bolded, underlined paragraph in that guidance. I've sometimes referred to the analogy of it's kind of like when you were a little kid and your dad used to give you that look across the table and he'd say, don't make me come over there. I think that's kind of the posture that FDA has here is like, we're going to give you that flexibility, but you better keep going. You better keep pressing. And they've emphasized this is their discretion. And so they really want to see people continue that. From a PDG perspective, it's kind of business as usual, continuing to march forward because that continued progress is important. The other thing that I think is worth noting that the industry has really been emphasizing is that one of the big industry pushes for this type of flexibility was driven by the fact that November 27th of 2023 was kind of a flip of the switch date. Everything else in DSCSA phased in by sector. And with this November 27, 2023 date, everybody comes online with that requirement at the same time. And this is a process and a system through the supply chain where things necessarily flow down the supply chain. Even with this year, I think the industry is still recognizing and pushing that there still needs to be some phasing within that time frame where manufacturers and wholesalers need to stabilize early in that period. And then that wholesaler to dispenser engagement and connection needs to happen well in advance of November 27, 2024, so that those systems still have that time to mature in advance of November 27 of 2024. This is not something to just sit back for. I think being diligent and proactive and thinking about what is your schedule look like for this next year is going to be really important. I really like that concept of emphasizing the flexibility and yet still allowing those folks to catch up as you're emphasizing Josh's point from earlier. And Carolyn, as we move from getting ready to being set for DSCSA compliance, what are some of the next steps that our members should be focusing on? 
aligning with what Josh and Eric just said. Getting ready was understanding DSESA and beginning to develop a plan. Being set means actually fine-tuning the systems and processes that you have in place so that you can meet all the requirements. The last requirements for our members to be prepared for is that electronic interoperable exchange of the transaction information and transaction statements, being able to verify at the package level, including the use of the standardized numerical identifier, being able to promptly respond with the TI and TS information for investigations or for returns to manufacturers and managing saleable returns. All great advice. And Josh, why is it important to have documented policies and procedures to ensure compliance? It's really critical. Many of your members likely already have robust policy and procedure sets on any number of pharmacy practice or other regulatory requirements that they need in order to operate and stay in compliance with state and federal law. When it comes to DSCSA, having policies and procedures around receipt and verification of products, having procedures to ensure that you're only doing business with authorized trading partners, what you do in the event that you identify a suspect or illegitimate product. Those robust procedures, they need to also detail how you'll train your staff on a given procedure and then documenting that you've trained your staff on that procedure. And then also, how do you show that you are actually following your procedure? Because it's one thing to have this lengthy and detailed procedure, but if you either can't explain to an inspector or another regulator what you would actually do in a certain instance or show them what that process would be, the procedure really isn't worth the paper it's written on in that instance. But it's also important to note that while trading partners can actually rely on their suppliers or wholesalers to help with some aspects of compliance with DSCSA, ultimately the burden for compliance is on the trading partner. One of the pieces of advice I give whenever we give talks to pharmacies and other dispensing groups is if you're approached by a state board of pharmacy inspector and they ask you, explain to me how you handle this under DSCSA, if the response back that the inspector receives is, well, my wholesaler just does all that for me, they're very likely to have some very uncomfortable follow-up questions because that's not entirely true. The point of emphasis is, as a foundation, have that robust set of policies and procedures, but then also make sure you're training on them and then that you can document that you're actually following them. And Josh, I think that's a really good reminder. We spend a lot of time focusing on this data component and data interoperability. It's our sole charge as PDG. It's what we're talking about here today. It's all about that stabilization period. But important to remind folks, that data interoperability piece is one component of what's a much broader, more holistic approach in the DSCSA to supply chain security. That's right. One of the other things that we've seen and that we're working with our members, but then also other trading partners is how we can simplify for the community and really boil down what is actually required. Because you're right, the technology piece of this can be big and scary. The reality is that having a sound foundation with policies and procedures really gets trading partners well on their way toward compliance. And then it's a matter of sorting out how they're going to store their tracing information, for example, and then how they retrieve that in an instance that they need to conduct a suspect or illegitimate product investigation or provide that information to a regulator that's doing the same. If at this point in the timeline, organizations need help with creating those policies and procedures, where do they go? 
one, depending on the organizational structure, many large organizations are going to have a compliance department that routinely puts together policies and procedures. Many may also belong to a trade group or an association that may be willing to or may already have policies and procedures that are quote unquote canned. The one point of emphasis with that, however, is if you're looking to purchase a set of policies and procedures or work with a consultant, which are are good things that trading partners can do to come into a compliance, make sure that you make those procedures your own. It is not good enough just to buy a set of policies and procedures and put your name on the top. That is not going to fly with the states or ultimately with the FDA if they were ever to visit. Yeah, I may point people to just a couple of other resources that are maybe a little bit more educational in terms of the underpinning of what should go into those policies and procedures. There's a great resource out there, dscsa.pharmacy. And I know both of our organizations are part of that, where we try to consolidate and combine a lot of the resources specifically for pharmacies and dispensers around what the DSCSA means. And then I point folks as well to our PDG blueprint for how industry is approaching interoperability at dscsagovernance.org backslash blueprint. Yeah, great direction from both of you. And we'll make sure that we link to those resources in the show notes of this episode. Eric, Carolyn had previously mentioned responding right away to investigations. How is the 24-hour time frame defined since medications are not traced within a hospital? There's probably a couple of aspects to that question that I can touch on here. And before I jump into that, I'll also encourage folks around the time that that compliance policy came out from FDA, they also put out a final guidance on their EDDS, Enhanced Drug Distribution Security Requirements. One of the things that's buried in that guidance is an indication from FDA that they may actually express some flexibility and approach it as a one business day versus 24-hour kind of requirement. So encourage folks to go take a look at that guidance document. The question really hits on a couple of pieces. One is this 24-hour response time. And I guess what I encourage folks to think about and recognize is 24 hours isn't all that long. About And when you think about getting a request in, processing it, getting the data bundling it up and getting it back to a regulator or trading partner. So be thinking very concretely about the systems and processes and policies and procedures, how you do that. How do you make sure somebody's monitoring wherever that communication is coming into and they're not on vacation? It's not going to sit there for four days. Who's going to need to review that and decide whether you respond? Does it go through your compliance shop, your legal shop, your ops team? Who's going to handle that? How are you going to go get the data? Who's going to review it before you send it back? How are you going to bundle it up? How are you doing all that interoperability? There are a lot of steps that go into that process. And so where 24 hours or even one business day may feel like a long time from a system perspective, from a technology perspective, from a process perspective, it is really a a tight timeline that you've got to be well prepared to execute. In terms of the internal trace piece, one of the things that I think people have recognized correctly is that there is no requirement to trace product within your hospital or health system. But what I really encourage folks to recognize, there's also a very important quarantine requirement in the law. So if you get notified, hey, serial number 1297 is suspicious or illegitimate, you have a regulatory a statutory obligation to quarantine that product and get that out of the flow of product within your health system. And so while you don't have to trace product through your health system, if you've got 13 hospitals and you're just managing your product and data at a corporate level, how are you going to quickly identify where serial number 1297 is? find it and get it out of the supply chain when you get that notice that it's suspicious or illegitimate. Don't lock too hard into that no traceability piece. I'm not saying you have to trace. There are other kinds of controls and processes you can use, but be thinking about that piece and not just saying, hey, it's in my pharmacy now. I can shut off my mind to DSCSA and just forget the DSCSA applies to this product at all. It's not that simple. 
So there really is an expectation to be nimble, responsive, and timely in this case. I think that's a great way to phrase it. Josh, some DSCSA regulatory responsibilities are shared between the FDA and state boards of pharmacy. What does that look like to you? When the DSCSA was enacted in 2013, there were several things that happened right away. The primary one was that it immediately preempted any other state-based tracing or quote-unquote pedigree laws that were already in effect. And it began to set the framework for that staged implementation moving toward this electronic and interoperable system. There's what's taking place on that data side and the movement of data in between trading partners. The other component to that was that the law required the FDA to establish national licensing standards for wholesale distributors and third-party logistics providers. Last year, the FDA published a proposed rule that would set out what that framework would look like for a national licensing standard for wholesalers and 3PLs. And then once that's finalized, states will need to align their statutes and regulations underneath that national licensing standard to ensure that they can continue to regulate wholesalers and 3PLs in their state as well as those wholesalers and 3PLs that ship into their state. The qualifier there is that that will not go into effect until two years after a final rule is published. We do expect that there's still going to be some time before FDA publishes that final rule. In fact, at present, they have their goal of April 2025. That's on the FDA's unified agenda. And so assuming that FDA were to hit that date of April 2025, the earliest that it would go into effect would be in April of 2027. And that's assuming that the FDA hits that April 2025 date. That lays the foundation for the federal framework and the federal regulatory construct. That said, states still absolutely have responsibilities under the DSCSA. The majority of states actually have references within their statutes that when they're out inspecting, that there's an assumption that they are checking for compliance not only with state law, but with federal law. There is that cover from a state and federal perspective. The other thing to keep in mind, and this applies for many of your members, the states are really the boots on the ground. They're the regulators that are out in the field conducting inspections of wholesalers, 3PLs, and pharmacies. They're the ones that are conducting investigations into diversion or suspect or illegitimate product. If you think of it, the FDA has sort of set up this umbrella and the FDA may and, and often will take actions on trading partners that are out of compliance with DSCSA. But in terms of the day-to-day, our members and the other state regulatory bodies are really the ones that are in the field. And your members are more likely to see a state board of pharmacy person than they are to see someone from the FDA. So there is that shared responsibility. And NABP and the boards do work very closely with the FDA to help try to ensure that alignment and coordination. That does make sense for me. And thank you for clarifying that a bit. Sticking with the state-specific perspective, many of our health systems care for patients in multiple states. So how do we account for traceability across state lines? And what should we expect in the future? One of the first things that health systems need to keep in mind is that you have to ensure that your trading partners that you're doing business with are authorized under the DSCSA. So they're purchasing from a wholesaler, that means that wholesaler has to be licensed appropriately with the state and that they also have to report their licensure into the FDA's database. Having a mechanism in place to not only ensure that your trading partners that are out of state that are shipping to you are actually licensed appropriately with the Board of Pharmacy or the other regulatory body is a critical step. And so it's not only making sure that when you're onboarding them that you take that step of verifying the license, but that you also do so on an ongoing basis and that you document that you've done that. Now, the other critical component 
talking about traceability is that health systems may actually receive a product trace request from a regulator in another state. And that makes sense. If you have wholesalers that are shipping into your health system that's in another state, if a regulator is conducting a suspect or illegitimate product investigation, it's very likely that you could be getting a request from a state board of pharmacy that you aren't even licensed by. And that state is absolutely authorized and enabled to make that request for transaction information as part of their suspect or illegitimate product investigation. And so to that end, NABP has been working with our members and industry over the course of the past couple of years to try to develop a platform that can help create a uniform mechanism for regulators to conduct product traces. And so the thought process being by creating a uniform mechanism, trading partners have to deal with one type of a request as opposed to 50 different flavors of a request from 50 different states. We're launching what we're calling Pulse by NABP, which is our free digital platform that will enable regulators to identify and then make those product tracing requests with other trading partners, no matter where they are in the supply chain. We've also been working with groups like PDG and GS1 to ensure that what we're doing is aligned with the standards that are already under development. And so we're excited to be able to provide that service to our members, but then also provide that uniformity to trading partners to help enable simpler compliance when it comes to responding to regulator tracing requests. Those are all really good points. This is a law that industry asked for. This was a big piece of what drove that. There was a recognition of rare but serious threats to supply chain security, but it was also driven by this recognition that states were starting to implement these types of traceability and enhanced pedigree requirements on a state-by-state basis. And the industry, by and large, threw their hands up and said, how are we supposed to move products in commerce across the country in a national model when we're trying to record different data and have different information for the product in all 50 states. That uniformity and consistency with local enforcement, to your point, was a key piece of why this law is there in the first place and one of the key goals that it sought to achieve. And I think it really highlights the interconnected aspect of our healthcare system and how that is just continuing to increase and the challenges that this brings and how we have to look at novel and unique solutions to try to solve some of those problems. Eric, we're hearing a lot about saleable returns. What are some of the complexities here, especially around 340B medications? Complexities is a good word for it. It's a complex law, and this might be one of the most complex applications of the law that comes up over and over. But I would maybe highlight two main pieces of the 340B kind of space and issue when it comes to the DSCSA. First is that forward flow of the transaction information as product moves. Your product in a 340B model is typically moving physically, possession-wise, from a distributor to a contract pharmacy is the most common flow there. But the ownership of that product is moving from the wholesaler to the covered entity. And the DSCSA is structured around that change of ownership component. And so the transaction, as DSCSA defines it, is between that wholesaler, it could be manufacturer, to the covered entity. And that's where the data will flow, is to that covered entity. And so how do you link up the data going to the covered entity to the physical product going to the contract pharmacy? And what are the complications there? And how do you manage that data in that type of a model? So it's kind of one piece to think about. The big impact more from a a commercial or business perspective is what this will mean in terms of returns, which are an important piece here, which is wholesalers are only able to statutorily under the DSCSA accept returns from a pharmacy to whom they sold the product. And as I mentioned, that is the covered entity. And so moving forward, this has been a requirement historically, but without serialization, it's difficult to tie an individual product, individual package to a transaction. That capability will now be there. And so 
that individual return of an individual package or bottle must come from that covered entity to the wholesaler, not from the contract pharmacy. It also means, and this gets beyond the scope of the DSCSA, but from a practical perspective, it also means that that return can only happen and will only be done at the 340B price or rate as well. And so recognizing this level of granularity we will have moving forward will really necessitate that segregated management of 340B and non-340B products in your supply chain and how you think about those. So Eric, when you talk about the the data flowing from the manufacturer to the covered entity, but the product is flowing to the actual contracted pharmacy, can you talk a little bit about where the verification has to occur? Yeah, and nuance it a little bit, and the verification term is a complex one that gets used in a lot of different contexts. But I think what you're getting at there is this notion that you need to have some process or control in place to make sure the physical product you're getting and the data you're getting match up. You shouldn't be getting data that says, here's bottle one, two, and three. And in reality, in practice, you're actually getting bottles four, five, and six. So how do you do that reconciliation piece? And that's what FDA calls it is reconciliation back to that EDDS guidance I referenced. Take a look at that if you've not looked at this issue. That's going to be the biggest complicating factor there because how do you do that type of reconciliation of your product and your data when they're going to two different places. That's just a business process that 340B covered entities and contract pharmacies are going to have to work through and find a solution to. Those are helpful insights and advice on, as you mentioned, very complex process. Carolyn, any last thoughts on how our members can be set for DSCSA? Yeah, Gretchen, along with the announcement regarding the stabilization period, and both Eric and Josh have mentioned this in the podcast, the FDA also released several compliance policy guidances, which I highly recommend reviewing. The first is an immediately in effect compliance policy guidance titled the Enhanced Drug Distribution Security Requirements. And this guidance describes FDA's compliance policies regarding enforcement of requirements. The second is a revised final compliance policy guidance titled Wholesale Distributor Verification Requirement for Saleable Return Drug Product and Dispenser Verification Requirements when Investigating a Suspect or Illegitimate Product. This guidance describes FDA's compliance policies regarding enforcement of requirements for wholesale distributors and dispensers to verify a product identifier in certain circumstances. And then additionally, on August 30th, FDA announced a final guidance, Enhanced Drug Distribution Security at the Package Level under the DSCSA, and the updates address comments from a June 2021 draft guidance of the same name, including clarifying terms and recommendations such as operational processes related to aggregation, reconciliation, and responding to verification requests. So I think these three guidances are an important next step in getting ready. And again, we'll definitely link to those in the show notes of this episode. I wanted to thank you all so much for joining us today. It's been great having you on board to hear about this important issue, and I really appreciate your expertise. Thank you, Gretchen. And thanks, Josh and Eric. I learned something from both of you every time I talk to you. Thank you so much for the opportunity, and we'll look forward to continuing the conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me, and great to be here. Please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I'm Gretchen Brummel. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.